0: The word Dhamma, as you know, has a wide range of meanings. It means the truth, the law, the nature of things, the way things are, and more specifically in this context it means the teachings of the Buddha. The two great wings of the Buddha's teachings are wisdom and compassion. And both of these wings are needed if we're going to fly on this path. Without wisdom, we may have compassion for the suffering of beings, but we won't necessarily have the insight or the clear vision of understanding how best to alleviate that suffering. On the other hand, we may have wisdom and insight into the way things are. We may have wisdom about the Dharma, but without compassion we're not necessarily motivated to act to alleviate suffering. So it's said that when both wisdom and compassion are fully developed, fully matured, enlightenment is inevitable. So our task, then, really, is to see how we can strengthen both these wings of the Dhamma. So over the last weeks, we've discussed quite a bit the wisdom side of things, exploring the impermanent, empty, selfless nature of the mind, exploring the sense bases, the aggregates, different aspects of the Four Noble Truths. So tonight I'd like to speak more about compassion. And the Buddha emphasized this heart quality of mind in different places in the teachings. I mean, in the most obvious way, compassion is one of the four Brahmaviharas, the four boundless states of metta, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. But it's also part of the Noble Eightfold Path. The second step of the path is right intention or right thought, (coughs) right aspiration. And it's usually described as those thoughts (coughs) or qualities of mind of renunciation. Free from ill will, which is metta and thoughts free from cruelty, which is compassion. And when we look at this, we see that this dichotomy between skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome, is very clear. The mind state of cruelty wishes to harm beings. It's the disposition in the mind to cause pain, to cause suffering. When we hear that, we might think that this mind state of cruelty, of wishing to do harm, is a rare state of mind in the world. It's not something we might feel very familiar with. But we can see the manifestation of this mind state of cruelty. In many situations of violence throughout the world, you know, sometimes this state of cruelty seems infectious. It seems to infect whole populations of beings. You know, when we read about the killing fields of destruct- destruction, you know, which we've seen in Cambodia, in Rwanda, in Darfur, in so many places. You know, just in in recent years, in our memories. We see this mind state of cruelty in the destruction of so many indigenous cultures in the world, you know, which has been going on for hundreds, many hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. We see it in the violence and cruelty of slavery and its legacy of racism, you know, which is so strong in so many ways in our culture we see cruelty manifest in all the actions of homophobia you know or violence against women the range and the force of this particular defilement this cruelty of mind is very extensive and far reaching and it shouldn't be underestimated. It's the cause of a huge amount of suffering in the world. But there is also a powerful antidote to this force in the mind, to this great destructive energy, and that is the power of compassion. Because compassion is that strong feeling in the heart, that strong motivation, that strong aspiration to alleviate suffering, to alleviate danger, to alleviate harm, and really to bring it to an end. Compassion, when it's developed, opens our hearts to the suffering that's there, that's always there, and it overcomes our indifference and our inaction. So compassion is that strong feeling that actually motivates us to act. And Thich Han expressed this so beautifully and succinctly when he said, compassion is a verb. Compassion is what moves us to respond. And it was this precise feeling, This precise state that motivated and sustained the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, before his enlightenment, you know, throughout endless life plans in his quest for awakening. So the Dalai Lama speaks often about compassion and the power. Of this, of this mind state. He said, compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but difficult to practice. And when I read that and reflected on it, it seemed so striking to me. Why is it that such a beautiful and ennobling state of mind, state of being, why is it so difficult to practice? You know, what's the challenge of it? And when we look and investigate this question, it may reveal within ourselves even small and unnoticed moments of cruelty in our own lives you know, that may have gone unacknowledged. So when does compassion arise? It arises when we're willing to come close to suffering. It's the proximity to suffering that gives rise to this feeling. The problem is and the challenge is that even though we may want to be compassionate and even though we often are, it's still not always easy to open to the suffering that's there. And we know this from our own practice, just as there are so many times when we don't want to open or acknowledge the pain in our own experience. We don't necessarily always want to open to the pain and suffering in others. You know, there are such strong tendencies in our minds that keep us defended from this, that keep us withdrawn, that keep us indifferent, that keep us apathetic. This indifference to suffering or apathy regarding it is a great barrier to the arising of compassion within us. Mary Oliver, who's this wonderful poet, she wrote a poem called Beyond the Snowbelt. And in the poem, she describes a great blizzard, a snowstorm that has wreaked tremendous destruction two counties north. Right? And she's describing the storm and how people are affected by it two counties away, You know, just reading about it in the news or seeing it on television. And she wrote, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. That's such striking words because we are bombarded with news of suffering, often. You know, the means of communication these days, it's like instantaneous input. And yet, unless there's some quality of connection, of love, of care, we see it we hear about it, but it's as if the news is arriving from a distant land. So just as an experiment in understanding our own relationship to suffering and whether we let it in, whether we are defended against it, watch your mind the next time you approach a situation of suffering, of pain, of difficulty. It might be some pain in the body. What's the first reaction in the mind? Is it, oh, good, let me explore this. Probably not the first response. (laughs) I don't like it. Can I keep it away? Can I avoid it? It might be some painful emotion. What's our first response to when painful emotions arise? might be feelings of discontent or fear or unworthiness or shame or jealousy or loneliness. Are we practiced in letting them in, in feeling them, in understanding them? Or again, are we defended against them because they're painful, because it's suffering? It might be an interaction with a difficult person. We can watch our minds in all of these situations. It could be when we become aware of a situation of suffering in the world, you know, of racial injustice or political or religious violence or you know, natural disasters, we can be watching ourselves at times when we become aware of all of these aspects of suffering and just see what's our response, you know, what's our conditioning, what's, what's our habit of mind with respect to these things. Do we feel uneasy? Do we withdraw from them or turn away or try to push them away? or do we let them in, remembering that compassion arises from a willingness to open to suffering, from a willingness to come close to it. I could see all of these different tendencies in my mind. Of course, almost any time one looks, but a particular situation uh, was during my time in India. You I spent many years there. Because anybody who's been to India and spent time there knows that there are all of these wild dogs around, you know, just wandering around in pitiful condition. You know, just really abject suffering, often no fur, just full of mange, starving. So there would be times when I would just be sitting in the local bazaar, you know, in in a chai shop, a tea shop. And these dogs would be you know just wandering in and in and about. And it was so instructive to watch my mind at different times. There were times when I could really see and let it in and open to the suffering and this tremendous compassion would arise. You know, I'd want to give it some food and just do whatever I could, which was not much. But there were other times when my mind was just close to it, I had had enough. I didn't want to deal with the dogs. You know, and I I could just feel this barrier go up. Don't let this in, go away. And there was this whole range of response. And one was really an aspect of cruelty, you know, just kind of the cruelty of indifference and not caring. And the other was the manifestation of some caring and compassion. So it's all within us, this, this range of response. We need to learn about it. We need to, to see how it's working. One of the big questions for all of us is whether and how our hearts and our minds can stay open given the magnitude of suffering in the world, because it's huge. Is it even possible to open to it all you know, with compassion and diminish this tendency, the subtle cruelty of indifference? When we reflect on this, we see that this challenge, this question, how can we keep ourselves open, is not a theoretical one. Because it's not enough to admire the quality of metta or compassion from a distance. You know, as being, yeah, this is this is a noble mind state, but really somewhat removed from our daily lives. And it's not enough to simply cultivate compassion and loving kindness, you know, in the context of a meditation retreat. This can become a powerful support for it, but the real practice is to see how can we manifest this in our lives because our practice is about the transformation, the purification and transformation of our consciousness that increasingly makes compassionate responsiveness the default setting of our lives. This is the power of practice, and that's what practice means. We practice it so compassion becomes our habit rather than apathy or indifference. It's not easy. Compassion requires openness, it requires mindfulness, it requires equanimity. It's learning to let things in, to let the suffering in, without drowning in it, without drowning in the difficulties and without being overcome by sorrow about it, which is really just a subtle form of aversion. It's learning to simply be with things as they are, to be with the truth of things. And this is the great gift of mindfulness to compassion the training in mindfulness allows us to be open, to be equanimous in the face of suffering. And it's what we do in our practice every time we're able to open to our own pain and difficulty. When we can do that mindfully, we are really cultivating an attitude of compassion. Some years ago, I read an article about a Zen teacher in California, his name is Lou Richmond, and he had a very serious disease, it was viral encephalitis, which is a devastating and often fatal illness. He was in a coma for two weeks and there was brain damage and other disabilities, and it took him three or four years to recover from this illness. And he wrote about this uh, very insightfully and beautifully, his, his whole process, of becoming ill and then that very slow and gradual recovery. So I just want to read a short thing that he wrote about it. Sometimes when I'm asked to describe the Buddhist teaching, I say this, everything is connected, nothing lasts, you are not alone this is really just a restatement of the traditional three marks of existence, non-self, impermanence, and suffering. I don't think I would have expressed the truth of suffering as, you are not alone, before my illnesses. But now I find that talking about it that way gets at something important. The fact that we all suffer means that we are all in the same boat and that's what allows us to feel compassion. I thought that was a beautiful understanding of the first noble truth. You are not alone, we are not alone. This is a universal truth and that's what can give rise to the feeling of compassion. What we find as we practice opening to our own pain and our own suffering, both here on retreat and in our lives, as we learn how to come close to it and open to it, we then have greater strength and courage to be with the suffering of others because we've practiced it. So the beginning of compassion is empathy. And this happens when we take a moment to actually feel what another person is feeling. We take a moment to stop and connect with another person's feeling, or with ourselves, to connect with ourselves before simply rushing on with our lives. This stopping for a few moments is its own practice. Because as we all know, there may be many times when we're cognizant of another's difficulties, another person's pain. But often we don't take the time, even for a few minutes, to actually open to it and understand it in ourselves, to empathize. Empathy is really the heart mind of inclusion. It takes others in. Miyokan, who was this great 18th century Japanese Zen master poet hermit, you know, just a wonderful being, and the, the books about his life and the books of his poetry are really wonderful. He captured this open-heartedness, this sense of inclusion, the sensitivity to the world around us, even with inanimate objects. So one of his poems, which I love, he wrote, I've forgotten my begging bowl, but no one would steal it. No one would steal it. How sad for my begging bowl. (laughs) He just felt so much compassion for his begging bowl that no one would bother to steal it. We can practice developing empathy in different kinds of situations. It might be feeling the distress of the restless person sitting next to you. You're sitting and meditating and the person next to you may be moving around or rustling. Instead of getting lost in aversion and how they're disturbing my practice, is it possible to actually open to the suffering that's behind that restlessness? It might be opening to the suffering of somebody who is really close to us or to a stressful situation in the world. Can we feel it empathetically? Empathy has the great power to take us beyond our self-referential point of view. I had a striking example of this. It was quite a few years ago now, but I was in kind of a major conflict with somebody about something which, from my perspective, they had done something which I thought was unskillful, and, and I was really caught up in just my view of it and how wrong he was and kind of on and on and on, and I just there was so much kind of aversion in my mind. And then I happened to be walking by uh, the office and some other people were talking about this fellow and I just overheard the comment that was saying how much suffering he had about this situation. And it was amazing, in that moment, just from hearing that he also was suffering it's like all my aversion disappeared. It's, it's like in that moment when I could open to the suffering, all that was there was compassion for the whole situation. And it was such a striking uh, shift of perspective. And it reminded me of a great teaching by, I think it was 16th century Zen Master Bankai. He had this one pith teaching, which can serve us all really well. He said, don't side with yourself. (laughs) You know, how often in our lives and in our interpersonal conflicts they're fed because we're siding with ourselves. So if we can remember to kind of see the whole, it's tremendously helpful. Of course, sometimes there are situations when people really are behaving badly, you know, where they might be causing a great deal of harm, a great deal of suffering, either to ourselves or others. But again, it's instructive to watch our own response. Even when the situation actually is like that and somebody is doing harmful things, our usual reaction generally is some kind of judgment about how bad they are, you know, and feeling righteous, self-righteous, in our anger and our judgment about them. But is it possible to see and feel out the situation in a larger context? And one example of this, was written about by a person who had been the physician to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. His name is uh, Dr. Tenzin Chodruk. And he was imprisoned by the Chinese for many years. Imprisoned and tortured and it was just a horrible situation for over 17 years. And When he came out, he, he wrote about his experience and he described what made it possible for him not only to survive physically, but also to survive with a heart that remained open and compassionate, rather than filled with anger and hatred. And What he said was that throughout that time, he saw that his tortures, his enemies, were human beings just like himself, and that his guards, and tormentors were also people who were in adverse situations, in that they were doing the kind of actions that were just sowing the seeds of their own future suffering. So that's quite amazing that in the midst of that kind of situation, he was able to hold that larger picture, that larger perspective that we're all in this together. It's, we're all in the same boat. He never forgot <coughs> the commonality of our human situation. He understood so deeply that all actions bring about consequences. And what particularly struck me was that Dr. Chaudrick held this understanding of karma, that actions bring results, not as a vehicle of revenge, oh, these people will get theirs. He held it as a vehicle of compassion, understanding the suffering that was being created. It's quite extraordinary. There was an article by a writer named Claude Levinson, who wrote about Dr. Chodrik? He wrote, an appearance almost of timidity on first meeting, a voice so quiet it might be a whisper. Dr. Chodrik could easily pass unnoticed until you met his gaze, a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything seeing beyond the suffering he has experienced, beyond all the evil and the abuses he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings. That's quite striking, you know, and even if we're not quite at that place yet, I think it serves as a model for what's possible. It's important to understand that in situations when it's possible we sometimes do have to take appropriate actions and even strong actions you know where we set boundaries when people are doing harmful things you know and to act to redress injustices but can we do this can we take this active response with a wise attention to our own motivations. Are our actions coming from anger or hatred or resentment? Or do they come out of compassion for the suffering that's there? So we need to look clearly because at different times it may be all of those. We need to see. We really need to understand ourselves. The great lesson here is that how we feel and how we respond to situations is up to us. So we need to take responsibility for the quality of our own hearts, our own minds. No one else can do that. So empathy brings us close to suffering. It allows us to open to it, to feel it, at least to some extent. Compassion takes us a step further. It's not only feeling what others are going through, but it's also being motivated to act on that feeling. So as compassion grows in us, we begin to practice an active engagement with the world. We practice responding to the various needs of beings in whatever way is appropriate and in whatever way is possible. And sometimes we act in very small, unregarded ways. It may be a small gesture of friendliness or forgiveness or generosity. And we shouldn't overlook these small opportunities or underestimate their effect. I think most of us either directly or indirectly have had some experience of the great empathy and compassion of the Dalai Lama. He just He exudes it. And it's a very interesting uh, article written by Pico Ayer, who traveled with His Holiness uh, for extended periods of time. And this is what he wrote. He said, one of his greatest and most mysterious gifts is a kind of radar that alerts him to who in a crowded space is most in need of help. He'll walk into a jam-packed school auditorium, and in the midst of greeting his hosts and shaking hands with everyone eager to say hello to him, making eye contact with each one, he'll notice through a kind of peripheral vision or intuition someone on crutches, and walk instantly over to that person and offer a blessing, a reassuring touch. While going through an almost unimaginably busy schedule on a typical day of touring, he'll be hustled toward his next appointment, and then suddenly, alone among a crowd of 50 or so, he'll veer off because he's seen a child in a wheelchair by herself and ignored over in one corner. Often he'll respond warmly to even the pushiest person trying to make contact with him on the street, and that is. Perhaps not only because he tries to live without aversion, as well as attachment, but because he senses that that person is in need in some form, lonely or unsure of himself. And the pushiness is just an expression of deep pain. Wouldn't it be fantastic to live like that? To be that open, that receptive, that tuned in, to the suffering of beings. That's the power of compassion. And Of course, we need to start where we are, but it's something that can be developed and practiced. A couple of years ago I saw uh, a documentary film. It's called A Small Act, and it was quite an amazing film. In the mid-1970s, there was a Swedish woman named Hilda Bach, and she was participating in an international scholarship program sponsored by a group of Swedish nationals. And they were committed to helping children in Kenya from very poor families to help pay for their continuing education. And the film both showed this woman and also was filmed in Kenya and showing you know, the extreme poverty of many of the outlying villages and what the kids needed to do just to go to primary school and the difficulty of continuing. So one of the recipients of the scholarship was a young boy named Chris Maburo whose school fees were paid by this Swedish woman, Hilda Bach, over quite a few years. So he went on with his schooling in Kenya. He went on to the University of Nairobi Law School. He got a Fulbright scholarship to Harvard, graduated with a master's in international human rights law. And eight years later, after he graduated, he set up his own foundation to help really bright kids in Kenya continue with their education. One ordinary middle-aged Swedish woman moved by Compassion to make what was rather a small monthly donation ended up transforming hundreds and maybe thousands of lives. And it was just so striking to me. A small act. We shouldn't underestimate the power and the potential, the effect of what we can do. You know, we don't have to be great saints or be some special person to act with compassion. So sometimes it 's just in these very small and unregarded ways sometimes compassion manifests in acts of tremendous determination, you know this kind of the, the strength of compassion and one striking example of this is uh, a public health doctor or You may have heard of uh, Dr. Paul Farmer, who's done lots of work in Haiti and many places around the world. And there's a wonderful book uh, written about him by Tracy Kidder called Mountains Beyond Mountains, describing his life and work. And there was one one incident described in the book, which just showed the tremendous strength and determination he had. He had a clinic where he was uh, serving a lot of people, and then over a couple of days, he walked over seven hours to treat two families. You know who who lived way out. This was in Haiti, and his colleagues in the clinic kind of got on his case for, you know, you could be so much more effective if you just stayed here and see so many more people. And this is what he wrote. It's, it's so striking. He said, if you say that seven hours walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. And just that line it' just it really struck home you know the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that 's wrong with the world, so can we just let all of this in you know and, and look at the way we relate to the suffering that 's there to how we relate to all beings. do some people matter more, some people matter less, not with judgment, not with self judgment or guilt. Or, just so we learn about ourselves and learn about the potential of transformation. You know, sometimes compassion manifests as great courage. You know, sometimes it's just a simple act, like Hilda Beck. Sometimes it's that determination of Paul Farmer. Sometimes it's it's really courageous. And think of people like Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King Jr., you know, would see films of Martin Luther King Jr. leading marches in places surrounded, you know, by people filled with hatred, just, you know, situations of potential and actual violence. And he was right there with a heart of love, with a heart of compassion. There's tremendous courage in that There's one amazing story, you may not remember, it was in the news quite a few years ago of kind of spontaneous, just spontaneous compassion, courageous, heroic compassion. It was in New York, and kind it of in a subway station, and somebody, a woman, had fallen on the tracks, and a train was coming. And this guy's name is Wesley Autry. He jumped on the tracks on top of her, lay flat, and the train passed over them both. And this is what he wrote. So can, can you imagine the situation? I mean, you're standing on that subway platform. You see what happened. Could you imagine kind of jumping and if the train comes off, oh, pretty extraordinary. So he wrote, I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. I do construction work in confined spaces a lot. So I looked, and my judgment was pretty right. The train did have enough room for me. <laughs> <laughs> quite amazing. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine myself considering the possibility, but even if I imagined myself considering it, I could see myself, is there enough room? Isn't there enough room? <laughs> <laughs> he, psh, he saw the need. Psh, he acted. I mean, what motivated that? was? It was just this amazing moment of compassion. I think what's important in reflecting on all this, is to realize that there's no particular prescription for what we should do. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action. You know, we shouldn't think, oh, some actions are more compassionate than others. It's not about that. The field of compassion is limitless because it is the field of suffering beings. And we each find our own way, we each find our own path. It might take the form of active engagement with the world. It could equally take the form of living in a cave, you know, in the mountains, meditating with the aspiration, the motivation, to awaken for the benefit of all beings. Now, just think of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, before his enlightenment. It said that for innumerable lifetimes, before his awakening, he would practice as a renunciate, in solitude, perfecting all the qualities of Buddhahood. Now, how many lifetimes of practice before his great energy of enlightened compassion manifested in this world? And you could just imagine, you know, in those lifetimes, he's off in a cave, his family or friends saying, what's that guy doing to help anybody? And he's just off looking after himself. It's all in the motivation, and only we know that. So compassion doesn't take any particular form. We have to, we have to connect with what our particular path is at any particular time. You know, for the bodhisattva, he was interested not simply in alleviating the suffering of a particular situation, but in alleviating the very causes of suffering. How can we uproot the forces in the mind that create all the suffering in the world, the forces of greed and hatred and delusion? And that's precisely what we're doing here. 2,600 years later, All of us are benefiting from the power of His wisdom and compassion. It's quite amazing. We need a lot of humility on this path because. This quality, and to develop this quality, does not come easily. The Dalai Lama wrote, he said, changes in attitudes never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide, round curve that can be negotiated only slowly, not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. You know, we talk about our practice. Do we really stop to reflect on what that word means? It's not just something we do at a particular time. It's understanding that the development of all these qualities, whether it's of mindfulness or loving kindness or compassion, is a practice. It's the repetition. You know, and the perseverance in cultivating these states that allows them to grow. We really need to see it as a practice. Howard Cutler is a man who co-authored the book with the Dalai Lama, his first, his first big bestseller, The Art of Happiness. And you might remember it from quite a few years ago So there was an interview with Howard Cutler. And he was asked, could you say a few words about how in the many years of conversations, His Holiness has impacted you personally? So Howard said, I have gradually become more and more convinced about the importance of compassion and kindness, not as religious or spiritual or Buddhist principles, but as critical to our survival as a species. That's been a real change for me. In fact, it's to the point now in my life where I feel there is nothing else that's more important than kindness and compassion. That's not to say I'm the most compassionate guy in the world, but at the very least, I've developed some compassion for myself for not having enough compassion. I think we need to have that attitude because we could create an ideal of how we should be in the world and you know hold up the Dalai Lama or some of these people I mentioned and feel we're well short of that. That's not the point at all. (laughs) We need to have compassion for ourselves for being just where we are but understanding that it is a quality that can be practiced. So we simply start where we are and develop it from that point. (laughs) There's a wonderful haiku by the Japanese poet Isa, I think, which captures our predicament. New Year's Day. Everything's in blossom. I feel about average. (laughs) That's where we are. (laughs) I feel about average. But that's where we are, and that's where we start from. Each of us, in our own way, you know, following our own particular path of interest and capability, each of us in our own way can plant the seeds and water those seeds of a kind and compassionate heart. And slowly, over time, with practice, they grow and they become stronger and they become the guiding principles of our lives. And perhaps what's most important to remember is that even at those times when we're not acting from that place of kindness or compassion, it can still be the reference point that reminds us of other possibilities. So that's the seed we plant. That's the seed we nurture and water, and slowly it grows. I'd just like to close with something from the writings of Minja Rinpoche who wrote a wonderful book called The Joy of Living. But the best part of all this is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion whether we're aware of it or not. Whenever you look at your mind you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear or anger or aversion You can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear and anger and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve. And the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables become as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings have joy and the causes of joy. May all sentient beings remain in great equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. Let's sit for a few moments.